Hello, we are Restoration Church Chicago and welcome to our podcast. You can connect with us through our website, restoration.life, as well as on Facebook and Instagram. Our mission is to glorify Jesus everywhere, and that includes right here, right now. Thanks for tuning in. This service has been a has been a nice meal, and when, when I go to people's houses, I always bring a salad or dessert because I, I don't bake and I don't cook, so I can just bring it easy, right? It's easy. To, so this is what this is just dessert. Um, I've, I've gotten a lot out of this this meeting, so I appreciate that. Um, so I I do have a big lofty goal for myself today, and that is to make sense. It's not always easy for me to do. I'm a wordy person. My my, my hope is that no one's going to walk out of here with this like, what was he talking about? So to Hugh's, to Hugh's point, I already said to myself, don't mess up. Uh, and here's why. Today's passage is Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make straight your path. And the reason I'm, I'm warning you all is that in the next five to 10 minutes, you're gonna think that I'm preaching on Proverbs 1, verse 7, which is the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom. Hugh talked about that um, a little bit over a month ago. We've been a little bit disjointed in the Proverbs series here. So I want to tie some things together, but I think it's really important um, because the whole book of Proverbs hinges on that verse. And we're going to use that verse to sort of feed our understanding of Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 because we miss that, we miss everything. Because the Bible speaks very, very clearly and frequently about the fear of the Lord. And you would think that because it speaks so frequently and clearly about it that we would all just kind of know what it means. But I have tried to hone in on what it means to me and having several conversations with, with individuals over the course of the last month or so, um, it, it's, it's just not, it's not that clear. It's not that clear. And, and maybe it's a word, maybe the word fear bothers us. Maybe it's a language barrier thing. We think of fear, we think of something bad. And you know, people say, well, you shouldn't be afraid of God. Therefore, we relegate it to like awe and respect, which is, which is partly, which is true. Um, but I think it's an over-simplistic way to make God more relatable. And in doing so, well-meaning individuals like myself will emphasize this loving nature, his gentleness, his forgiveness. But before I can, and excuse me, my nose just went south. Before I can actually know I even need that love of God, that love of Christ, I need to, I need to see myself as a desperately lost sinner, as somebody face-to-face with a holy God whose judgment seat that Paul notes and ties to the fear of God is where my life is gonna culminate in the end anyways. And so I need to stop in my tracks and, and, and realize and pause in my life. Am I living with that end in sight? Now maybe we're on the other side of things. Maybe we see God as a control freak, a punishing God, someone we should tiptoe around, try not to mess up because maybe our up bringing emphasized a fear of consequences. But in doing so, then we miss out on that provisional, loving, secure Christ. Now, regardless of what side you fall on, the caution here is that we don't make God in our own image. 
We have a tendency to do that. Isaiah chapter 29, 13 says, because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. In other words, take caution that we don't minimize God into something more palatable, into one of our own image and bring him down to something that we can trust and bring him down to something that we can't trust in the first place. We love the humanity of Jesus, his relatability, but at the neglect of his holiness and his power and his transcendence. He's different than us. To to paraphrase John Bevere, he said, don't be so quick to claim friendship with God, with Jesus. He said, Jesus, the only people in scripture that he calls friends are those that tremble in his presence and respond with obedience. When Jesus calmed the waters in the storm of Matthew 8, the disciples who were following him, who, who he called friends, looked at each other and they said, what kind of man is this? They were terrified, yet yet they were safe. When he was teaching the people and demonstrating his power, they were all amazed. They were, they were in awe. What, what kind of teaching? What is this new teaching with authority? Even the demons and the unclean spirits obey him. Are the things that Jesus is teaching you, is the word of God causing you to tremble? Is it amazing you in your day-to-day life? Derek Prince said it like this, the best I can explain the fear, the best that I can explain the fear of the Lord is like climbing to the top of a cliff. And when I get up there and I look down, I know what would happen if I jump, but I know that I'm secure if I just stay right where I'm at in in, in that presence. Now that reminded me of a story. So I'm trying to experience the fear of the Lord when I'm thinking about this intellectually. And I remembered this, we we took a trip to Puerto Rico a couple years ago and we did this rainforest tour. And we walk up this, anybody been to a rainforest? It's mud. It's a mud path, and you walk up this path for about an hour, and it's uphill, and you get into the middle of this rainforest. It's beautiful, just surrounded by these prehistoric-looking trees and ferns and everything else. And up there is a natural waterfall that created a natural water slide that went into this beautiful just pond of water, deep water. And there's this 40-foot cliff over to the side. 40-foot's not that dangerous or crazy, but you could jump off this cliff. And people, hundreds of people around just lounging and watching and, and uh, in the water and they're cheering for people. And you can only go one at a time. But I remember walking up the backside of this cliff and I'm getting to the top of this cliff and suddenly I can see how high I am and how high over I am. I am. And, and I get to the edge of this cliff and I look and I go like, it, and there's a guy here who's guiding people up. He's grabbing your arm and, I, and I'm like this. And I'm looking over and I see like boulders and like rocks. Like you had to jump out to actually, like if I would have fell, like I probably wouldn't have died, but I wouldn't have been the same. Like I would have, I would have been mangled. And so I'm sitting there like this. And like in that moment, everything was, fo- like I'm gripped, I'm focused, everything. But I was excited, but I was terrified at the same time. There was no way to distract me. My entire focus was on my body in the bottom of my foot. And I wondered, is that what God wants me to do? Is it, does he want to bring me to the edge where all I can do is focus on him? Does he want to push boundaries in my comfortable way of living and create a radical outpouring of his presence in my life? The answer to that question is, is not debatable, by the way. As, as I went through the study, I was convicted by a sense of complacency in my life. Why am I not more radical in living out the life of Christ in me in a way that stands out more in a culture that hates God? Am I taking Jesus too lightly? What areas of my life am I not trusting the Lord with? Is it that the God of my understanding is not one I can trust with my whole heart? Is he not one I believe can stand up to the culture and the circumstances of my life and see me through 
potential loss and change? So with those questions in mind, I want to narrow it down a little bit as we approach takeoff. I want to begin to think about three words. We use them all the time. They're closely related. Sometimes one and the same. Fear, worship, and attention. See, the truth is that we are wired to worship what we fear. And the word worship sounds like a religious word, but it's really, it really means attention. And we always pay attention to what we fear. What we fear holds our attention. Therefore, the fear of God is really about worship. It's about attending to and being concerned for and focusing my attention on the Lord with a sense of urgency that drives me to cling to his love with obedience while simultaneously fearing the consequences of what would happen if I don't, but trusting the results if I do. The fear of the Lord is more than something I do, though. Something I am, a God-fearing person. It exemplifies our relationship with God. And so we urgently focus all of our attention, all of our concern onto God. And we live our lives from this relational position of worship, fear of the Lord. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 then becomes this proclamation of the gospel, an invitation to reconciliation with God on a path walked not by sight, but by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. And because of that sacrifice, we can trust in the Lord with all our hearts and lean not on our our own understanding. Now, incidentally, this relational lens is what the book of Proverbs is all about. Thomas highlighted this in chapter two when he showed us that wisdom flows from a relationship with somebody who is older, wiser, smarter than us. It's really about the gospel and our relationship with God and the wisdom that flows from that relationship and the foolishness it is to ignore that gift. And so naturally, it follows that wisdom is not something we just learn and apply, but something we become by virtue of our relationship with Jesus. It's an application of knowing, which Dan highlighted is observable in our lives. Wisdom is observable in action. It's not head knowledge passed on, but heart knowledge transferred into our very identity. So wisdom rooted in the fear of the Lord is the demonstration of the life of Jesus living in me. And I don't just fear the Lord because of the consequences that I might get if I don't, but because... When we're given a revelation of who God is and his love through Jesus, it also happens to come with the humbling reminder and awareness of my desperation in life, of the position that I'm in. And then trusting the Lord with all my heart becomes the only literal rational choice. Only wisdom can see that desperate necessity to trust in the Lord because we cannot rely on our own understanding that my relationship with God is the most important thing in the world and it's the place from which my path is directed because the gospel of Jesus Christ becomes the interpreter and illuminator of my life. So as we go into Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, we we see a pretty straightforward couple of verses. It's a very feel-good verse that gets shared a lot. But before we go into trusting the Lord, I wanna answer some questions. I wanna say, I wanna answer why can't I lean on my own understanding? What's the problem with my understanding? Isn't it it a God-given ability? Doesn't it set me apart from the animals? Turns out, as a matter of fact, that this rational thinking part of my brain, the part of the brain that makes sense of the world, that understands and interprets reality, is built on and subservient to the fear and relational center of my brain. So our behaviors and our actions that flow from our understanding is actually rooted in our fear system, which is either submissive to God or serving its own desires. What this means in a sense is that you and I cannot escape fear. As a matter of fact, fear drives all of our behavior and all of our understanding. Understanding always follows fear. 
Understanding always follows fear. And this is not some kind of like biblical theory or, or religious idea. This is actually how we're wired and how we're created. So when the Bible says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, what it's saying is the fear of the Lord, your relationship with God and the revelation of who he is, is actually the beginning of our ability to know truth and understand anything truthfully. It's the beginning of our ability to interpret and understand reality, which in turn informs the decisions that we make willfully. We tend to think that we're consciously present most of the time, that we're thinking rationally about what's happening in a life as it's coming to us. But what's really happening is this understanding part of our brain is actually explaining what's happening in relationship to that internal fear system. Now, if the fear system is detached from a secure relationship with God, as it was intended to be before the fall, I didn't say detached, attached, then it becomes, if it's detached, it becomes insecure and subject to serve the flesh. In other words, it's self-serving, self-soothing, and searching for comfort and control. So my entire understanding system then works to justify, rationalize, and explain myself in relationship to what I fear, which is hiding mostly, unconsciously, yet it's driving the train. Most of us don't realize that our entire identities, the way we think, the rules we live by have been developed in relationship to fear. You fear rejection, you're gonna develop into a people pleaser. You fear abandonment, you're gonna live to avoid close relationships. You're, gonna, you're not gonna let anybody get close. Let me give a quick example in a confession. When I said at the beginning that I hope I make sense, I, I meant that literally, literally, because I'm not sure in most cases that I make sense to anyone but myself. Get, get to the point is something that I've heard over and over in, in, in my life. <laughs> you might be thinking that now. I'm an over-explainer. This is driven, though, by a deep-seated fear of not being understood, of not being heard, which is ultimately rooted in the fear of rejection. Now, on the other hand, if, you, if you're a client of mine or you're a close friend who's sharing something deep with me, you are going to get that problem chiseled down to the core. You are going to walk away feeling like you were heard and you were understood. There's not going to be any doubt. So as I'm preparing this sermon, this fear gets activated, right? Because there's a, I, I don't, it's, it's about me. My fear wants it to be about me. And so I have about 70,000 words written down, right? That's, that's, about, that's about, as, about as much as a 200 page book or so, just to give you guys a point of reference. <laughs> I'm not joking, but it's actually pretty much versions of the same sermon written over and over. So if it was a book, it'd be like reading the same chapter over and over again, but explained 10 different ways. <laughs> Take your pick. I know what I'm saying right now is true, but I don't have any confidence that I've chosen the correct articulation to make sure that every single person here understands and relates to it. But that's not my responsibility. I, I, I had to let that go. None. But I've done my best, and God confronts me. Because what he says to me is, it's not about you. It's not about you. Trust me. Trust me. So this deception in our lives is so subtle and constant. It's so subtle and constant. The only control the devil has in our lives is if he gets a hold of that fear system. This has been his strategy since the beginning. He first raised doubt about God and raised Adam and Eve's anxiety. Rather than run to God, they began to lean on their own understanding and created a rational argument that justified eating the fruit as a means to gain comfort. They could have turned to God in that moment. They could have found peace and more revelation about God, but instead they willfully took, the fear, took their fear mechanism and attached it to an external object. 
And in an instant, their brains were operating in territory that they were never meant to be operating in, independent and detached from the security of their relationship with God. They were left to their own understanding and they couldn't think themselves back to God. There was no cognitive behavior therapy back then that was gonna fix this. And we need to realize that we've been operating this way ever since. We need to see that it's still operating in our lives, that we objectify people, places, and things as God. And when I'm hungry and starving for things that I think I need, and I begin to pursue those things as if they're God, it's all driven by fear. So our understanding finds itself relating to things that make us feel good or avoid discomfort. And then we become detached and dependent on these things, attached and dependent on these things and these relationships and our way of thinking as well. So the fear of the Lord is about turning the attention of our fear system back to God through Jesus. When our relationship with God is the most important thing in our lives, when my fear system is rightly attached to God, then we're in step with the spirit and our path is made straight. So as fearfully and wonderfully made individuals, our lives depend on who and what we trust. The whole thing of life comes down to this relationship between fear and trust. So who am I trusting? Because even our, even our culture acknowledges this problem. And what does it say? Trust yourself. Trust your heart. But verse five says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. The word trust here means to be bold, confident, and sure with all your heart. Now the heart is referring to our inner will, our inner being. And the will is the place in our being that actually produces action. So trusting in the Lord with all our heart implies active trust. In other words, confidently and boldly submit your will to God. So it follows that we can't say we trust the Lord if we're not doing what he says. And we can only trust him as far as we know him. Which is why trust is another one of those words that is entirely relational in nature. I don't just trust anyone. That, 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 that's foolish. Trust is a relational experience of being safe. It's alive and it grows with experience. It's in no way a logical thing. It's relational first. And it's validated by consistent experiential knowledge built on the security of knowing somebody in a consistent and steady manner. It's built on daily relational patterns and moments. And the essence of building trust is what's called attunement, which is facilitated by psychological attention, which, as I said earlier, is worship. Focusing our attention on the character and faithfulness of God in our relationship to him. Look at this from a parenting perspective. There's actually an observation in psychology related to parenting which says that it's actually worse when parents are emotionally inconsistent than consistently abusive. Loving one day, abusive the next. Emotionally available one day, neglectful the next. Why is that? Because the fear and relational areas of our brain are always trying to organize and submit themselves to relationship. It's trying to submit and tune itself to a consistent relational baseline. So the brain of the child is organizing to either stress and insecurity or security and peace. Now, no one leaves childhood unscathed, but no one went into childhood unscathed in the first place. We were all born dead, separate from God and in sin. So we can blame our parents all we want. I know I like to blame mine. But what we're left with is something that only God could soothe in the first place the anxiety, the insecurities, and trust issues that we recognize in relationship to our childhood, which is as far back as our rational brains can go, only serve to point us to God. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, all our problems are because of our tragic inability to understand the character of God. It's not our problems that constitute our real problems, and our psychological understanding of those problems won't fix it. There's this lack of knowledge and understanding of God and how he works, which makes our problems overwhelm us. 
which makes our problems more of distractions. So you wanna fix your relationship? Get a bigger picture of God. You wanna know what to do with your life, your career, your job? Get a bigger picture of God. It, 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 doesn't, it doesn't make sense, because the problem is real, it's really happening, right? It, it's, it's practical in a lot of ways. We're not minimizing that. The Father knows we need these things, but seek first the kingdom. But seek first the kingdom. So we start with the fear of the Lord, we start with reverence in the face of his holiness and acknowledge that we don't understand. And so what we have in God is a father with a character that doesn't change. He's faithful. Faithfulness is the active consistency of the character of God in spite of the circumstances that we face. His faithfulness is what we depend on, which allows us to detach from the circumstances. It's what makes his, him trustworthy in the first place and allows us to tune into him. If he was inconsistent, we wouldn't, we wouldn't be able to tune into him. We'd be all over the place. We aren't being called to blind faith, though. We, we're being called to confidently and boldly trust the character of God and do what he says. Hudson Taylor said, when Jesus said, have faith in God, what he means is have faith in the faithfulness of God. Yes. Listen to this. John Stott said, faith is reasoning trust, a trust which reckons thoughtfully and confidently upon the trustworthiness of God. Trust flows from faith. Faith is a belief. It's a knowing of things that we can't quite see, but we know to be true. Trust comes from faith. So whereas faith says, I believe, trust actually puts it on the line. Whereas faith is given to us by God, it's a gift. But the relational experience of trust is fostered in relationship to God through faith. So trust in the Lord with all your heart is an act of the will that flows out of faith. And trust requires a test. It requires us to actually act it out. I can't say I trust someone if nothing's on the line. I can't verify their trustworthiness and feel the safety of that trustworthiness if I don't act on it. And I can't trust somebody that I don't know. And I can only trust them as far as I know them. If I'm not trusting the Lord, it's on me. Perhaps something else has my fearful attention. In Matthew 14, 28, after seeing Jesus approach the bull, you all know the story. In the middle of the storm, not quite sure if it was really the Lord, he says, Lord, if it's you, command me to come out to the water. Notice he said, if, and suddenly he's walking on the water. He didn't understand how he's walking on the water. He didn't strategize and, and understand the physics. He trusted the character of the Jesus he knew. But as soon as his senses were hijacked by the circumstances that he was in, his focus fell off the Lord. And then Jesus takes his hand, he says, oh, you of little face, why, why did you doubt? In other words, why didn't you keep trusting what you knew about me? Reliance on my own understanding will always cause me to drown. When James is talking in chapter two about faith and works, he says, show me your faith apart from your works. I'll show you my faith by my works. Even the demons believe and they even shudder. In other words, saying you believe and intellectually agreeing is worthless apart from the act of the will. I didn't see anyone do a safety check on their chair before they sat down. He trusted it. Faith without trust is not faith. Belief without reliance is empty. We may believe everything about Jesus Christ, but knowing those facts to be true is not what the Bible means by faith. It requires trust and a commitment to the facts of God lived out in action. And our whole Christian life becomes about knowing God and knowing him in greater and greater measure and then acting on that knowledge and trust. That is the most important thing, that we attune ourselves relationally to the character and person of God and when our fear system becomes organized to that loving, consistent father relationship through Jesus, we gain a bigger and clearer picture of what we're facing and the purpose for which we're facing it. And then verse six, he will make straight your path. 
fueled by the fear of the Lord, directed by wisdom, the life of Jesus living out in us. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. We don't have to figure out what to do and what direction to go in. The Lord will make straight our path, and as far as we trust him, our path will become an unveiled revelation before our eyes. I have to emphasize this path is, is the path of salvation. It's much bigger than a path towards a secure job and a secure financial future and secure relationships. Paths always denote a direction, and directions have ends in sight. So this path is about saving us from the fires of hell. This path is about walking away from sin. It's about seeing that our participation with what's right in front of us is going to be judged and that there will be a new heaven and new earth that we look forward to. The Bible is very clear in what we should not fear. It's always external circumstances, but it never wavers that we should fear God and fear God and turn from evil, go hand in hand in most cases. Fear God, take the anxiety, take the stress, take all of your worries and concerns as a sign that your inner being is calling out for its creator and go there. That's what it means to fear God. It means to redirect the fear mechanism that is operating inside of me and calling me to sin, worry, bad habits, desire, and take it to Jesus. Trust in the Lord with your entire will, your entire being, and act in obedience and respect. And then we have the promise that he will make straight our path. One more example to show this at work. I wanna consider 1 Samuel 30. So David is on the run from Saul, right? He's on the run. He's basically in asylum with the Philistines, go figure. And his men are marching behind the Philistines to go to battle with Saul in Israel. And the Philistine generals weren't comfortable with that. And so they send him back to his, to his camp. Um, when he gets there, he finds out that the place is burned. All the women and children are taken, taken away. And the men are devastated. Verse six says, and David was greatly distressed for the people spoke of stoning him because all the people were bitter in soul and each for his sons and daughters. But David strengthened himself in the Lord, his God. What does that mean? That means he remembered the Lord, his God, the God of creation and the God of the covenant, the God who promised him the throne. He knew the circumstances didn't make any sense unless through the eyes of wisdom, steeped in his relationship with the Lord. So he gained the Lord's perspective and he was strengthened and secured in that relationship. And then after he was strengthened and secured in the Lord, then he sought direction. In verse eight, shall I pursue after this band? Shall I overtake them? And he answered, pursue for you will surely overtake them and you will surely rescue. David didn't go into prayer request mode and pray for what he wanted or hoped for in order to alleviate his anxiety. He didn't act out in his emotions either. Rather, he strengthened himself in the knowledge and the character of God. This is how Jesus taught us to pray in the Lord's Prayer. We come and we say, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. There's a fear and a respect and acknowledgement of his sovereignty that must be had before any specific requests are made. Now, when I pray, I tend to have an agenda. I've already figured out what I need and I just start asking for that. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't ask for things, but I can say this. The Lord is not here to pacify us and give us things to soothe our anxiety. He wants us to see him first and find security in him because he's our provision. He's the source of strength and comfort from anxiety that's being driven by the circumstances in the first place. If God gives us things we ask for in the position of an insecure, anxious heart, separated from the fear of the Lord, 
then he'd be enabling us. He'd be playing into our idolatrous hearts. Whatever our fear finds relief or pleasure in, whatever environmental factor that our security is tied to risk becoming an idol that we put our trust in. So we go in fear to the Lord. We find security there. Psalm 115 speaks to this in verse 11. He says, you who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. In Psalm 34, trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. The desires of your heart, by the way, are about relationship security and about identity. It's not objective. It's not goal manifestation or measured by a cultural standard at all. Oh, come Children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. He's leading us on a path towards righteousness. F.W. Krumacher, a German pastor from the 1800s, said this, reason mistakes and knows nothing of divine things until the heart obtains an insight a living insight into its own necessities. Our human understanding cannot reconcile fear and trust. That They don't go together rationally. But in reality, the only thing to be fearful of and the only thing we can trust is God. And he's desiring to reveal himself and his grace more and more to those who will see the truth of this seeming contradiction through faith and live it out in a continual demonstration of trust. So Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, trust in the Lord with all your heart, lean not on your own understanding, in all your ways acknowledge him, he will make straight your path. Without changing or paraphrasing any of those words, it's both an invitation and it's a reminder. First, it's a reminder to those of us who have placed our lives in Jesus, to press into our relationship with him, to continue to fear him who made the heavens and the earth, to see everything through the lens of the gospel which we've believed. For others, it's an invitation to see just how much the creator of the universe loved you, that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. That, that kind of God is a God that goes way beyond my understanding. That's a God I can trust with my life. No human could, could make that up. So I, I wanna end with just a couple questions. Where is your trust right now? What makes you secure? Where are you still potentially a prisoner in a world of your own understanding? And do you really trust the Jesus that you think you know? Your questions to consider. In any case, the message for all of us is place your fear in the one you can trust. Amen. Thank you. Lord Jesus, let me, let me pray. Let me pray before we clap. Thank you. I don't know. I don't think it's worth clapping for anyways, for God. <laughs> Lord Jesus, thank you so much. Thank you, God, that you are so beyond our understanding. Let, let, let us grasp that reality that we can't, we can't keep up with how big you are. Let us continually be compelled by the fear of the Lord, by, by your love, by your power, by your sovereignty in our lives. Let us see every single moment right now that we're dealing with, every step that we take, every moment of our lives as something of value to you, as something of value in relationship to you. Or we submit that to you. We submit our hearts today to you. Bring to light the things that are holding us back. Bring to light the things that, are, that, that we are lost in, in, in deceptively thinking that we're comfortable and that we're okay because somehow the world says it's okay and we think it's okay. Lord, bring to mind your heart in us. 
In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks again for listening. We hope you were encouraged. Don't forget to connect with us through our website, restoration.life, as well as on Facebook and Instagram. 